Every organization needs agility, be it in being the market leader or trying to keep their businesses afloat during a crisis. In the year 2020, every organization is facing a crisis. As we go through a global turmoil right now, it's sad to say that many organizations shall not pass. It is said that we live in a VUCA world, one that is volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous, and it takes agility to navigate through it. Many enterprises need assistance of a great partner that helps them achieve this newfound way of working. And one such person who's helped organizations to achieve their goals since the past 30 years is Sunil Mundra. He's the author of the book Enterprise Agility Being Agile in a Changing World, a well-known speaker and a principal consultant at ThoughtWorks. So welcome everyone as I speak with him about the bits and pieces that make up an agile organization. I am your host Vishal Prasad and this is Enterprise Joy, educating organizations to be awesome. Okay, welcome Sunil to the show. I'm so, so excited for you to be here. I mean, okay, first of all, congratulations for the two-year anniversary of your book. I have been told that it was 29th of June when it completed two years and I I really can't believe it's been two years already because I I just remember like yesterday I uh, we spoke about your book being released and I read about it. So congratulations for that. It's been amazing. Vishal, yeah, thank you very much for uh, having me on the show. It's uh, it's it's an opportunity which I have also been looking forward to. Yes, about the book, uh, it seems like yesterday. Uh, two years have just flown by, uh, and it, it has given me a tremendous sense of fulfillment, especially. The kind of feedback which I have got uh, from from people who have read it. So thank you very much for remembering the book anniversary. Oh yeah, my pleasure. In fact, th- this episode is doubly special for me as well. Okay, so two things. First of all, you are my role model, and I uh, I'm so so glad that I have you on the show. But secondly, we are going to discuss about agility, which is like one of my most favorite topics ever. So this this episode is like doubly special for me as well. I'm I'm so excited for you to be here. The pleasure is all mine, uh, Vishal. Thank you very much for your kind words. Um, uh, I also want to say at this moment that uh, I am inspired by you with the work which you do to educate the community about agile and agility, despite the demands of time that that you have uh, coming from your career and your personal life. Uh, So keep up the good work there. Thank you so much. It means a lot coming from you, seriously. Okay, but but since we are on that topic about agile and agility, let's let's address the elephant in the room, okay? So we have been listening about agile and agility for, I don't know, since 2001, at least that's when it all started. But how do you differentiate agile and agility or is there even a difference between the two how do you take that well there is definitely a difference and the proof of that is that i have devoted one full chapter in my book to call (laughs) out the difference (laughs) yeah because i really uh, felt that people were using these words as synonyms uh, and, and they are obviously not. Yeah. So let's start with what Agile is. Uh, and of course, uh, I don't want to dwell too much into the uh, details of what Agile is, but at a high level, we know that it came about to introduce better ways in developing software and in collaborating with the business uh, to, to 
essentially as a response to uh, waterfall or uh, heavy wet methodology related issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, Agile has a few practices, processes, etc. But it also is based on the values and principles which, uh, which drive those processes and practices. Uh, so there is a doing part of Agile, which is the processes and practices, and there is a being part, which is the mindset uh, driven by values uh, and the principles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you do and be Agile for a certain reason, because you want to influence certain outcomes. Right? Now, those outcomes are essentially, when you're talking about Agile, you are driving those outcomes at a team level. Okay? But if you drive those outcomes across even all your teams within an enterprise, mm-hmm. there are several parts of the enterprise which do not get covered just by adopting agile ways of delivering software or delivering anything for that matter. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the aspect of agility comes in, wherein you look at the entire organization and you say, what capabilities does this organization need or any organization for that matter needs to be able to deal with change? Mm-hmm. And Agile, therefore, contributes towards agility. Mm-hmm. But as they say, it's a necessary condition, but not a sufficient one. <laughs> yeah. So agility is a set of capabilities. Mm-hmm. And according to me, the three primary capabilities which underlie agility are sense, adapt, and respond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Agile enables that to happen to some extent, but mm-hmm. you need to do a lot more to be able to enhance those capabilities. Right. For example, how do you look at your budgeting process mm-hmm. on a big bank basis versus looking at initiatives on a continuous basis to be able to fund them? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you govern? How do you look at the people function? Uh, or traditionally known as the HR function. Mm-hmm. So those aspects you need to cover as well. And those for me fall under the ambit of uh, enhancing agility within the organization. Mm-hmm. And again, both agile and agility are not ends in itself, but they are means. Mm-hmm. So the capabilities with agility provides you the ability to sense, adapt, and respond is what an organization can use or an enterprise can use to really delight the customer, to create a competitive uh, advantage for them, to be able to make all their stakeholders happy. Mm-hmm. Right. But then, so even when we say agile and agility, but there's still a lot more, right? So you have enterprise agility, which is basically the title of your book. And then right. we have business agility, we have organizational agility. And the way I see it is these are also means of more or less achieving the same ideology or the same uh, same state where we want organizations to be in. So even though we have multiple words, are they pretty much the same for you? Yes, broadly they are the same. And the similarity is that uh, all these approaches are looking at the organization as a whole. Mm-hmm. What 
differentiates one from the other is the way you slice an organization and the way you approach uh, enhancing agility uh, in, in, in terms of what do you pivot around and what do you choose to enhance as a part of the organization. So it's mostly related to how you slice the organization and uh, then look at each component of that organization in terms of enhancing agility. Mm-hmm. So, to be very honest, since 2001, now, after so many years, I have started calling this like an agile movement. And for sure, mm-hmm. I don't say that out of kindness, okay? The reason being, I have seen like a flooding of agile coaches in the industry to an extent that I have stopped calling myself an agile coach. And I have an anal- analogy for that, but I, I won't get into it. But the the entire aspect of industries is they have invested so heavily into agile coaches because they want to transform and change their status quo the way it is. And then uh, there are times when I uh, when I read headlines like headlines that say our organization will be enterprise agile by 2020. How do you feel about it when you read these kind of headlines? What goes in your mind? You touched upon a very important point, which uh, I am dealing with as a challenge uh, when I work with uh, my clients, uh, which is that uh, people see transformation as that silver bullet mm-hmm. to solving all their problems, and people expect magic to happen. Uh, and people think that by bringing in coaches who are experts, the problem can be solved. So. If you look at the meaning of transformation, the real meaning of transformation, it is moving from a given state to a fixed state in the future, which you have envisioned. Mm-hmm. So it's about moving from point A to point B. The metaphor which is often used for transformation is a larvae converting itself into a butterfly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what we are talking about here is a you cannot fix an end date to change Mm -hmm. because as we will or as i will highlight a little bit later organizations are are not closed-ended systems they are open-ended systems as i've said in my book which means that you really can't predict how the organization is going to react to changes so putting a fixed date and working backwards is again uh, rooted in the traditional thinking of how one treats the problem as a, a problem which is a closed-ended problem. Mm-hmm. What I am trying to do is when I engage with leaders, I tell them that don't think of it as a transformation. Think of it as an evolution. Mm-hmm. So you can start from where you are and you can always improve from where you are at a point in time, which also means at a point in time in the future. So this evolution part <clears throat> sorry, is more important. And I think people not recognizing that. I think we are used to... Uh, milestones 
a uh, lot of people want to declare transformation as successful yeah. sadly for wrong reasons yeah. uh, people set a deadline that oh we want to be transformed within 12 months 18 months uh, often anyways these are 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 almost impossible timelines given the size of the organization even if you were to go from point a to point b mm-hmm. but lot of people's uh, interests are in that milestone because of recognition promotions uh, success being attributed to the person driving the transformation all of those things and the challenge which i want to highlight which i have seen in some organizations is that people have come and declared transformations as successful and i have moved on but the organizations have regressed back to their original state and then the organization have gone through multiple waves of transformation and that has introduced a lot of change for the within the organizations right so point i'm trying to make is that i think transformation is an overused word people uh, have not understood really the fact that organizations need to evolve and and evolve continuously and not just transform from point a to point b mm-hmm. yeah so so transform not to transform but rather to continuously evolve yes the the underlying thing still is that all of this is being driven because of change right so there is change for whatever reason that has to happen and that's the reason why organizations pivot their path in order to take a newer path or achieve newer goals so change has been with us since forever as in every organization has undergone change the only difference i see now is change has become very frequent as in the pace of change has has gone through so much of uh, so fast that now organizations just need to keep on changing and keep up with the market and if they can't then they cease to exist and that's pretty much what we are looking at the the pace of change has increased and that's what we want to address with agility isn't it absolutely so you're absolutely right vishal uh, change has always been there and organizations always have had agility and they 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 are alive because they have agility i mean i equate agility to human health as long as a human being is alive you have some level of health it may not be the best but you you have you have health within you uh, mm-hmm. when you're alive and same is the case for organizations mm-hmm. point is that the pace of change has now become exponential it's not linear mm-hmm. and the challenge which organizations are facing is to keep up with that pace of change because they are not modeled to deal with that pace of change or to change itself uh, as fast mm-hmm. and when that gap between the pace of change of an organization and the pace of change of the environment keeps on increasing mm-hmm. that gap is known as the sustainability gap mm-hmm. and if that sustainability gap becomes too high then yes the organization is putting itself at the risk of survival mm. 
but you do say that change has become exponential it's not no longer linear but then we do have models like the like the cotto model which is eight simple steps to change uh, maybe even if it is iterative in nature but it is still a simplistic model which which is linear at least but i am a big fan of that model i actually like the way it goes from a sense of urgency till the point where a change is introduced that mm-hmm. if i keep on doing that iteratively wouldn't that help with my agility again you know when we come back to evolution mm-hmm. when you think of evolution right evolution will have at some points where uh, the evolution is 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 big right so when we look at our human history the industrial revolutions you can pinpoint and and say that yes those were the big points of change mm-hmm. right when the internet came it was a huge moment of change for businesses and right. of course the dot com uh, you know the model uh, would apply but over a period of time when you take all of those things into consideration so you have these spikes uh, yeah. where change is is much faster but otherwise it's the change is evolutionary in nature yeah. and what we have seen in the last 10 years uh, the kind of change that we have seen we have not seen that change in the past 100 years well. yeah so yeah so models would apply uh, but they 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 may not be as linear uh, as we would think that they they would be or at least when they were conceptualized mm-hmm. um so maybe people and organizations would go through some or all of all of those steps in those proven models of change mm-hmm. but may not even realize it because it's happening so fast right so you did mention that when it comes to transformation there are organizations that go through certain programs but then they fall back to their original ways of working and they have to go through a number of pushes before that happens the the concept of uh, what you're talking about is organizational inertia in that case isn't it yes. the p yes. where it's difficult to push the organizations to move from uh, their current state how, yes, how do absolutely. you see organizational inertia playing into this agility or rather if i want to bring in agility how how do i get rid of this yeah so that's a huge barrier to transformations and uh, as as you have rightly said um, inertia is a huge impediment uh, for organizations to become evolutionary in nature mm. the way that you would handle it is that you can't change the organization in a big bang way there is so much history legacy there's lots of things which are very deep rooted and not everybody will embrace change at the same pace even within the organization mm-hmm. yeah. so you have to introduce change in a gradual way i am a fan of that and i know there are some people who have taken a big bang approach to uh, bringing in change and they have succeeded as well mm-hmm. but my hypothesis or my approach is that uh organizations are complex adaptive systems as i have mentioned in my book they have a life mm-hmm. and when you have complexity within a system any intervention that you do is essentially a hypothesis mm-hmm. you will not know until you try it out as to how that organization is responding to that intervention mm-hmm. so the approach which i suggest and which is what 
I normally do when I work with clients is to frame the change program in a way where you set out a vision where you want to be, so what are the drivers of the change and key milestones that you would like to see along the journey, at least till you get to a sustainable base of change. You start small, you take up a few teams at the ground level, mm-hmm. uh, you introduce change there through the agile practices, processes, and the mindset change that you need to make it happen. And when you create a success story, mm-hmm. the appetite for change across the rest of the organization suddenly changes. Mm-hmm. A lot of inertia is linked to the appetite of change within the organization. Mm-hmm. And when you can prove that change can happen even within a small part of the organization, the rest of the organization then slowly begins to open up to this new possibility of embracing uh, better ways of working or uh, to make changes, even though they may be a little bit more painful, uh, to be able to uh, benefit everyone, including the people within the organization. Mm-hmm. So you you start small, you bring in some success at the team levels, mm-hmm. and then you expand that. Right. So first stage, we can call it as a show stage. You're proving something. You're making a point that change is possible because in many organizations, when you go, they say, this is not going to work. Yeah. You cannot bring in change. We are just too deep. And that's the thing. Agile doesn't work for us. That's that's exactly. the mantra. Exactly. Exactly. It's like saying, oh, being healthy doesn't work for me. <laughs> you can't say right. You can't argue against agile and agility. Because it is so inherent, you know, if you treat it as health. So the first stage is show. The second stage is shift. Mm-hmm. So that's when you start working on the mindset. You start working on the behaviors which influence culture. Uh, and you start working towards that. So you start moving then beyond practices and processes which have brought in some good change and some good outcomes mm-hmm. to the mindset change. Once you see a little bit of that, then you move to scaling. Right. Yeah. Then replicate, you know, your success story across the organization. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you get to a sustainable stage. Now, this may sound sequential, but it is not. It is very, very uh, iterative in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the point is that organizations, when they embark on change, they are creating green shoots within the organization by bringing in those changes. Mm -hmm. But they are ignoring to look at the inertia which is prevalent in the rest of the organization. Mm -hmm. And when you declare your transformation program as done with a few green shoots, but with the rest of the organization still embedded in the past Mm -hmm. or in the inertia, then that inertia will overpower those green shoots Exactly. So and that is like, where, yes, that is where people then become disillusioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, people believe that agile does not work for us, uh, and then somebody else comes and does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I work for an organization which is one of the one of the probably the best known business consulting firm in the world, mm-hmm. and their IT organization. Uh, when I was there to help them uh, with their change program, 
they called it transformation by the way which is a different <laughs> point um that they were in their fourth wave of transformation and the first wave happened in 2006 2007 wow but this thing about where you you say that if there are there's more inertia compared to some departments who may have changed for example and these uh, overpower them it sounds like that story of the monkeys right where one monkey tries to grab the banana from the top and the others pull pull that monkey back down but there must be something that is going in everyone else's mind maybe so the story of the bananas is that every time a monkey goes to get the bananas the others get electrocuted and that's why they pull the others down but if i want to equate that with let's say an organization uh what if people have fear that hey if others change much faster than us then we may lose our jobs and that fear can also be one of the reasons why everyone pulls everyone else back and that can result in organizational inertia as well i mean there can be multiple reasons for why that inertia exists absolutely and resistance to change uh yeah. is is one of the key reasons for that inertia mm-hmm. uh and people resist change for for different reasons mm-hmm. uh people resist change because it could mean there's a lot of uncertainty for them it could mean that they would have to uh they would have to learn new skill sets mm-hmm. sometimes people fear change because they feel their incompetence will get exposed um there are multiple reasons why why people resist change and this is where i think involving people in defining the need for change making them uh, a part of that process that thinking process uh, when you create a change program giving them a voice on the table that mm-hmm. becomes very very important and really to understand the concerns of the people and to address them and mm-hmm. this is one of the key roles which leaders need to play when they are embarking on making change right so actually last year we uh, we had the agile india conference so they had uh, an agile coach camp and that mm-hmm. was one of the best experiences for me because you have these qualified and highly uh, appreciated coaches who are, who are present there we have uh, shane hasty and woody zool and uh, i mean you can talk about the biggies and they were present and uh, woody zool at that time was discussing about organizational inertia and i being mm-hmm. myself uh, a little bit of evil in that sort i i simply said during uh, during one of the sessions that we invest in agile coaches so much and we want agile coaches to help organizations move uh, and become better and let's say that we are capable of doing that so we enable organizations to move towards better ways of working in let's say 10 years mm-hmm. right in 10 years but then let's see the contrary of that what if and this is a hypothesis what if all agile coaches cease to exist right we don't exist anymore in that mm-hmm. case the organization will crumble under its own inertia and probably go out of business in the next 5 years so i mean the stories of blockbuster and nokia and so many other organizations which which have seen that happen but yes. when that happens and when the organizations who have this a uh, way of working which is not appreciated by let's say the customers or the people if they cease to exist in the next 5 years then all the organizations which will exist will be great places to work why can't we just do that i mean if it's evolution why can't it just be survival of the fittest and let the others just perish 
doesn't doesn't that be something that we can do i know it's it doesn't sound very great but isn't that an option um for me personally speaking uh it is not an option <laughs> okay right when you made the statement that what if all agile coaches were to go away mm. again i give a lot of examples about human health right and i'm going to again come back to that mm. it's like saying what if all the doctors go away right. or what if the doctors choose only to focus on those patients who are young and healthy mm-hmm. and just leave the others uh to die a death for themselves <laughs> i can't imagine that right. i think there is always hope mm-hmm. uh, uh and if there is willingness within the organization to make a change mm-hmm. then yes it is our duty to see what best we can do again the same approach like a doctor you may be the best doctor in the world but if the patient comes to you at a very late stage at a terminal stage and you can't do much about it and the patient passes away mm-hmm. well it's it's not a good outcome at all but right. the point is as a doctor you never gave up you mm-hmm. still did your best yeah yeah so that's exactly how i would approach an organization uh which uh, which which is deeply rooted in inertia or which has you know big problems but mm-hmm. as long as they show an inclination to change or to improve or to enhance agility i am more than willing to give my best shot at bringing in change in such organizations great when since you spoke about doctors and the terminally ill patients uh, i remember elizabeth kubler ross curve like the the curve the well it's actually the grief uh, how the stages of grief but in the recent the past it has been seen that that's what we see with management as well so change management we see people go through that same curve again and the same thing as mm-hmm. you said like the bigger the change the deeper the depression and then it basically depends how how easily people can overcome that or it turns into a crisis one of the two things that you can have at the end so these small iterative changes or the evolution path is something that helps people to accept these things readily or at least in a simpler way compared to something else yeah yeah and that risk of getting stuck in that in that curve when you're like really low at the lowest point in that curve mm-hmm. uh is is something where again leadership plays a very very big role uh and i think coaches can help a great deal in reassuring leaders that yes we can come out of this yep, because absolutely. otherwise at that point it's all gloom and despair it seems like all uh, all is lost and it seems like a very chaotic situation mm-hmm. uh, but if handled well uh, and if leaders have the conviction uh, organizations definitely can come out of uh, you know that low point that low point absolutely okay so since we equate this with health we do know that agility is something that have existed in organizations like forever let's say since the first industrial revolution but its definition and its uh, its usage or the way it is now uh, now being conceived is different that has changed over time how do you see this change uh, or how have you seen this change happen since let's say the very beginnings uh, till 2020 how has that been for you <laughs> 
So if you look at the history of businesses, right, uh, in a true sense, businesses really understood uh, how to scale only during the second industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. And one person who actually drove a lot of that and is really responsible for the success of the second industrial revolution that we saw, which brought in so much prosperity, uh, especially in the Western parts of of the world, uh, is Mr. Frederick Taylor. And he wrote these principles of scientific management. Uh, And based on those principles, organizations master manufacturing uh, and organizations also learn how to scale and become big. Um, but Frederick Taylor wrote his principles which were meant to be applied in the context of manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean really is that it is driven by machines. Mm -hmm. People are enabling those machines to produce some output. And you are doing something very, very, very repetitive. You are producing exactly the same thing in Again, mass okay. quantity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So people were actually uh, not doing as much cognitive work when they were working on machines. Mm-hmm. And that's when Frederick Taylor recognized that bit and he said, and this is his key tenet of his principles of management theory is that the thinker and the doer should be separate. He did not want the worker on the machine to worry about anything else except to produce the part which he or she was supposed to work on as part of the process. You could have knowledge embedded in the process Mm -hmm. and the worker was just an enabler rather than a driver of outcomes. So what that led to is creation of hierarchies. So to manage the doer came the thinker, to manage that thinker came another thinker, right? (laughs) So then you have the manager, the senior manager, the assistant vice president, the vice president, and so on. Mm -hmm. So somewhere uh, the thinker-doer separation got convoluted. Mm-hmm. And we created these multiple layers that we see within organizations, which have led to slowing down of decision making. Second is the creation of silos because uh, Taylor emphasized, among other things, efficiency as well, which is important because if you are making the same thing over and over again, uh, you want zero process variation. And even within the specializations, you want to emphasize on efficiency. So right. silos got created. Um, and that worked, yeah, while the environment was very stable. So if you look at the environment in the second industrial revolution, it was an environment of scarcity mm-hmm. where whatever was being produced, consumers were lapping it up. Yeah. And the key problem for businesses at that time was how can we produce more? Capacity became the constraint. Scale yeah. became the constraint. Yeah. So the environment or the need to be tuned with the environment or evolve 
with the environment was less moreover the environment was not changing as much mm-hmm. yeah uh, but but that has changed when the third industrial revolution happened right internet came and suddenly entry barriers fell off i mean earlier you could have physical presence uh, and that would create entry barriers for businesses right for example if you were a retail store in a country and if you had 100 200 stores for somebody to come and compete with you they would have to build similar number of stores or even more to do that. exactly yeah. so entry barriers prevented a lot of businesses from uh, coming in therefore people could take their competitive advantage and their position in the industry for granted which is what they did mm-hmm. and that continued for decades but mm-hmm. internet changed all of that and that is when businesses started recognizing the need for organizations to change at a faster pace mm-hmm. but they were modeled in such a way they were modeled as closed ended systems right and therefore they were finding it difficult to change and organizations still continue to be modeled as that mm-hmm. and that does not equip or enable the organizations to change at all or to change at a faster pace so if you look at the new age organizations which uh, are doing well in terms of making their customers happy or even their stock market performance yeah. mm-hmm. they have very little or no inertia of that past mm-hmm. and they have modeled themselves to evolve continuously so like i said earlier agility organizations will always have and they have always had also otherwise they would not survive yeah. but the need for higher level of agility is there today because of that exponential pace of change which is happening in the environment and any organization which is not able to keep up pace with that mm-hmm. uh, will will risk uh, uh, will risk its survival yeah I mean, yeah. So we we call this as the VUCA world, right? So it it is volatile, it is uncertain, it is complex, and it is ambiguous. And unless you have enough agility to uh, kind of navigate through all of this, it's going to become difficult. So you do speak about the complex adaptive system. That's the nature of organizations, how they evolve. Uh, yeah. But the term complex itself is misunderstood a lot of times, right? So not everything is complex. but a not lot of knowledge work is complex so what is this complex that we speak about confession here vishal uh even before i started studying complexity hmm. i used to use the words complicated and complex as synonyms i used to as well before i came to know about it i used to as well in fact i used to think complicated is uh, is uh, more difficult than complex that that was that used to be my understanding at one point of time yeah yeah so the eye opener for me was the kanavin framework mm. uh we do not have much time to get into that depth but uh, i urge listeners to uh, explore that uh, the framework was created by mr dave stone and it has essentially four areas they are not quadrants uh but the two important areas which i found extremely profound and insightful are the domain of complicated and the domain of complex mm-hmm. yeah. 
complicated essentially is a a, a system which uh, has fewer parts and fewer unknowns around it mm-hmm. um it's a problem which is been solved in the past and it's a problem which is solvable only thing is you need an expert to come and solve that problem right so it's like saying okay i i need to i need to redo my house yeah i need to do some interior decoration so you need to call you know the designer the architect uh, the interior decorator who will then look at things and advise you what is the best thing to do where is it that you can change your light where you cannot do that uh, what about the plumbing uh, all, all those kind of things right where you need an expertise but it's a solvable problem mm-hmm. complexity happens where there are too many unknowns yeah yeah it's a system which is interacting much more with the environment as compared to a closed ended system wherein the interaction with the environment is far less mm-hmm. okay. so let's take a complicated system a wristwatch yeah mm-hmm. it is a complicated thing right i mean there is there is some engineering in that uh, which you know you need some expertise to manufacture a watch yeah. and then it works and yeah regardless of what is happening in the environment it is oblivious to that and it continues to function right uh or take for that matter the car except for the tires right which actually are interacting with the environment the rest of it it it, it doesn't get influenced by what is happening in the environment mm-hmm. right? but complex systems are always interacting with the environment and there is a lot of unpredictability uh in terms of how they respond to change mm-hmm. or how they emerge so one of the core properties of complexity is emergence which means mm-hmm. that you really cannot predict what's going to happen in the next okay yeah. so any living organism including humans and any socio economic system they all fall under the category of complex adaptive systems right just to look at a simple example of say weather mm-hmm. yeah. now weather is essentially based on four or five variables there is air pressure there is humidity there is wind there is precipitation and i think there is one more thing mm. but look at this you can't even exactly predict what exactly the temperature is going to be even the next hour or what the cloud pattern is going to look like within even within the next hour yeah now in fact I, i have started just accepting the opposite is going to happen so <laughs> I, i don't even believe in in the weather reports anymore yeah so i think the point is that uh, there is a lot of emergent behaviors which which happen uh, and and you have to accept and build on those behaviors but what you can definitely predict are patterns so we know that weather wise like for example in india you will go through three seasons the rainy season the, uh, the cold season and the summer season yeah you know that monsoon will come mm-hmm. but can you predict that exact date in advance and that exact time when it's going to happen in every single city no way mm-hmm. yeah so in a complex system you can have patterns which yeah. you should leverage but beyond that you know in terms of being exactly predictable or Uh, looking at something with a very narrow mind of saying okay this is the cause and this is the effect or if i make this intervention this is exactly what's going to happen that is something which will not happen in a complex system yeah shall the biggest 
problem that I see is that today, in today's environment, as you rightly mentioned, it's, it's a VUCA environment and that C stands for complexity and the complexity in the environment has grown exponentially. Mm-hmm. Organizations are complex and the environment is also complex. Yeah. But most of our leaders, you know, in organizations which are struggling to deal with change, they are using the complicated approach to solve a complex problem. Oh, I have examples for that. <laughs> I, I do have examples for that. And again, as part of my uh, work with leaders, when I coach them, mm. I the first thing that I do is I, I educate them on this difference. And I take them through various scenarios and I show them how this distinction becomes very important. Mm -hmm. So sure, even within a complex system, there are uh, complicated parts. And you need to look at that. But when you look at change and the holistic uh, picture of the organization, then you must look at it from a a complexity perspective and address it accordingly. Yeah. And and, and the probe sense response thing that you mentioned, that's basically the the complex quadrant from Kinevin as well. You probe, you sense, you respond and see how that works, which does differ from the analyzed sense response that goes into the complicated space and that's how it yes. gets deferred. Yeah. Exactly, so, exactly. In a complex system, right, you have to probe, uh, you have to make an intervention, see how that system responds mm-hmm. and then make sense of that and then you prepare your response. So there's always an element yeah. of probing uh, for example, you want to launch a new product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't know how your consumers are going to react. To that, right? yeah. So what you do, you actually show them something, you get their feedback, and only when you get a positive reassurance from the customers that they like it, mm-hmm. should you invest uh, in that product and take it forward. Mm-hmm. But what do we see otherwise? Uh, we see business cases which are conceived without any uh, actual feedback from the customers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all theory. I mean, if you ask questions, that's not real feedback. Right. Can you show the product and get feedback and build your business case based on that? Mm-hmm. And what are we doing? You know, there's somebody prepared a business case based on a lot of assumptions. Mm-hmm. And that business case is funded big time uh, without any validation whatsoever. Now, that's looking at something as a complicated problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is no probing. Right. But I, I do want to mention over there. So uh, whenever I have spoken about uh, about Kinevin, let's say, or and complicated and complex, there are times when when this uh, this becomes evident to people that oh, you're doing knowledge work that's complex. People get this sense of pride, and there are times when people have said that hey, then I'm better than someone who's doing complicated work. But I should say that's that's not really the case, because if you consider Israel that launches satellites multiple times that actually falls in the complicated space but the work that they are doing is exceptional and amazing so just because you fall in a particular quadrant that does not make you special or less special this is all of these are really really important when it comes to uh, the world or the organizations excellent point that you have raised here right and look what has happened because of you know that mindset uh the the doer mm. traditionally has got less importance or less recognition than the thinker mm. right yeah do you look right. at the construction side people 
doing a lot of hard physical work. Uh, I mean, they work 100 times harder than I do. Of course, the nature of my work is different. Mm-hmm. But look at the level of respect that they get, usually. Look at the level of respect which a worker on the shop floor gets as compared to the manager or the leader. Mm-hmm. So I think we have created this class divide where people who are doing the work are called resources. I absolutely abhor that word. Right. Uh, it assumes that a person is a machine, a lifeless something. Uh, and we continue to use that word even even in, in the software industry where we are actually doing knowledge work. Yeah. And in knowledge work, right, you cannot separate the thinker and the doer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure, some level of thinking needs to be done at a higher level. Uh, all of that is true. But in terms of doing the actual work, uh, it, because it is cognitive in nature, right, uh, you cannot separate the thinker from the doer. And it is very creative work. Uh, so, so I completely agree with you that regardless of whatever type of work that you do, uh, there is no need for somebody to feel superior or inferior exactly. because of yeah. the type of work that they do. Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm still waiting for the day when HR will no longer be called human resources, but rather be changed with human relations, because it's relationships that you're really building with the people that's that's more important than treating or just the people's function. But just the people function, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so I, I do have this one uh, uh, one instance that I want to uh, ask you about your views around that. So we spoke about VUCA, right? And the U stands for uncertain. And we are currently going through a pandemic, which was like so uncertain. But the moment it happened, countries went under a lockdown, as in India went under a lockdown. And... Uh, I have friends who work for big banks and big IT organizations who were asked to just stay home because there was a lockdown. However, for some reason, these organizations in the year 2020 did not use laptops. They still had desktops working uh, in their organizations. And these people used to go every day to their office. I mean, I, I I like the mentality that you will work only when you're in office and once you're home, you're done, which is not a bad Mm. thing. However, mm-hmm. because of the pandemic and this uncertainty, there was no good business continuity plan and people just stayed home and they couldn't work and organizations uh, just stopped churning value. And to an extent where one of these organizations, the leaders had an interview a few days back uh, where he mentioned that for India to get back to, uh, to the economic state that it was before the pandemic, People should work 60 hours a week. That's 10 hours a day, six days a week. And this has to continue for the next two to three years because the more you work, the more productive you are. And only then can you get back to your uh, old economic state, which is where you want to be. How agile is this, uh, this thought process for you? The way the entire organization has responded and the way the leadership sees this. Well, with due respect to the person who said this, and he's a very respected person across India. I know. Uh, But to me, um, this is very uh, traditional thinking, which is deeply rooted in the manufacturing mindset. Mm -hmm. And that mindset is that the more time you spend working on, the more you produce. Mm 
and therefore uh, you know time and productivity uh, are positively 100% positively correlated the more time you spend the more output you get simple yeah. that's not how it works in knowledge work yeah. it's about value it's not just about the output sure output is important but mm-hmm. where is the focus on value um, it's like saying a 200 page book is more valuable than a 100 page book need not be right? just because you have more pages so this mindset of more is better mm-hmm. and bigger is better mm-hmm. yeah that again comes from this traditional mindset vishal i am so intrigued as to how you know we call ourselves as very intelligent human beings uh, you know we we are blessed with intelligence as as a species mm-hmm. but this more is better and bigger is better is so deeply rooted within the mindset that until not too long ago and i hope this is not happening anymore but i am not so sure is imagine a software developer's productivity mm-hmm. was measured based on the number of lines of code he or she wrote oh yeah how absurd is that hey so this mindset and again there are organizations which are tracking people in terms of how long they stay locked in on their machines mm-hmm. i just read uh, an article which i was clearly infuriated uh, based on what i read in that is that in us uh, people have or organizations have installed software uh, uh, on the laptops of people who are working from home to monitor actually how many hours they are spending working on the laptop right so so i think this 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 really is a problem uh, this is this is clearly uh, this old traditional thinking and the second problem with with that statement is this suppose you work uh, even 60 hours a day and produce whatever you need to produce what if yeah. there are no buyers are you not causing waste by creating excess inventory right yeah so this again is a, another problem uh, which Uh, i have seen as a common pattern in terms of how leaders approach something is the local optimization problem mm-hmm. okay and that again is a symptom of applying a complicated solution to a complex problem right so let's take the example of a car if you have a flat tire on your car you just replace the flat tire right and you don't worry about whether it's going to impact the steering or the gear or the engine or anything else mm-hmm. you can isolate that problem and fix that problem locally most leaders when they are introducing change in organizations or when they are solving the problem in organizations are making this mistake and that's not how it is yeah like let again going back to the example of health let's take a human body even if a surgery is being performed on your hand mm-hmm. yeah the doctor is monitoring your heartbeat your blood pressure your other signals throughout your body yeah you just don't say oh, i'm just going to work on the hand let the rest of the body be as is yeah <laughs> and this is exactly how uh, you know organizations also need to be approached when making changes that very introduced change you have to think from a systemic perspective mm-hmm. uh, which is again a better way to deal with complexity uh, as compared to uh, 
you know, just locally optimizing things. Right. Hello, Sunil, we have been speaking for a while. Let's take a short break. But th- this thing that we have been discussing, when we come back, let's let's talk about the significance of leadership when it comes to agility. And even though we have so much of knowledge, how do organizations still, or which portions of agility or agile knowledge do, portion, uh, do organizations take up? Let's talk about that. See you in a bit. Sure. Hey, it's time to give a Patreon shout out to the following Patreon patrons. Sebastian Holscher and David Taborek. Thank you so much for all your support in our quest to help build awesome organizations. We could not do it without you. And for those of you wondering how you might get your own Patreon shoutout, well, become our patron on patreon.com enterprisejoy and support us. So welcome back, everyone. We are in talks with Mr. Sunil Moonthra, author of the book Enterprise Agility. And before going on the break, we were discussing about the role of a leader in, in an agile organization. And we ended the last segment being how, uh, how much uh, leaders accept this notion of agility. Uh, which brings me to the first question for this segment for you, Sunil. What do you believe is the role of leadership when it comes to being uh, agile or in an agile organization? The role of leadership is the most critical element uh, in improving agility of the organization. Mm-hmm. Let's look at some empirical evidence for that. Uh, there are some organizations which are publishing the state of the agile report uh, every single year since yep. the last I think, decade or so. And in this report, they call out barriers to transformation or change. Mm-hmm. and if you look at the top three, four barriers which they list out based on the surveys that they do, uh, in some form or the other, they are linked to leadership, mm-hmm. which is the first one is about the uh, culture of the organization is not aligned to the values of agile. Mm-hmm. The second bit is about no support from uh, managers and leaders. Right. The third point is about inertia, the resistance to change. Mm-hmm. Right. And all of these factors, if you look at the underlying uh, enabler or impediment uh, for all these things to improve uh, is leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it is the senior leadership uh, at the organization which makes decisions on the direction of the organization makes decisions on prioritizing where to focus on and where to put the resources of the organization. And by resources, I don't mean people. I mean money, attention, uh, all that bit. Um, And these people have an influence in terms of their behavior uh, across the organization. People look up to leaders as role models. So. Leadership is extremely critical, and often I get asked um, in terms of the change journey, do we begin top-down or do we begin bottoms-up? And my answer to that is both. At the bottom-up level, you introduce the agile ways of working. Mm -hmm. At the top, 
you really need to focus on leadership behaviors and mindship change that needs to happen with the leaders. Uh, and then finally, at some point, you know, both of these come together yeah. uh, and then create that impact. Mm-hmm. But you cannot start off a change journey without the change in the mindset and the behaviors of the leaders. Uh, right. It's set for failure on us. So I am a, a big fan of extreme ownership. So when, when we talk about extreme ownership, uh, the way I see leadership or uh, a leader, it's it's not a role or a person, but it's, it's more of a behavior. And it's more situational uh, in in a lot of ways. So given a particular situation, the uh, the team or the group of people, they decide who's the boss. I do understand if, if I call someone the boss, it may bring out a different notion. But what I, what I basically mean to say is that they believe that the decision should come from a particular person. But that particular person may be different based on the situation. So whoever mm-hmm. is the best possible person to make a decision at a particular point of time, uh, everyone else just becomes a good follower uh, and looks up to that person. So in order for you to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower as well. And that's uh, that's a premise for situational leadership. And the way so, I see leadership is more behavioral. It, it's not a person, but it's a behavior that one has to imbibe. How, how do right. you see that? Completely agree. Uh, behavior is something which uh, is is uh, is influencing uh, the the mindset and culture across the organization. And as I said, leadership behaviors are being watched by everybody in the organization. And because of the role modeling bit, you know, the behaviors become important. Mm-hmm. But coming to the decisioning point of view uh, or decision making point of view uh, from a leadership perspective, mm-hmm. um, the traditional way of making decision is that uh, because of my seniority and my experience, um, my views matter and yours don't. Uh, and what I think and I say is the right thing to do. Uh, so it's it's about that. Um, it's it's a sense of entitlement, a sense of privilege, uh, which leaders have when they say this this I I need to make this decision because I know better than you do. Uh, again, rooted in the thinker doer separation that right. the doer doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But in today's world, as we said. Uh, the thinker and the doer cannot be separate. So ideally, a lot of decision-making needs to be closer to the context or with the people who are closest to the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But there are some bigger decisions which uh, you know people uh, with greater influence across the organization need to make. Mm-hmm. And I think the point there is to take inputs from people on the ground, not make assumptions about what you know. Mm-hmm. Get a reality check of what's happening on the ground, mm-hmm. what's working, what's not working, what is the context, etc. And then, based on your experience and knowledge, and the fact that you see a much bigger picture than maybe somebody on the ground can see, you make that decision. Mm-hmm. What what you have done in the process is given a voice to the people who are closest to the ground, and you have actually considered their input in making your decision. So right. that is how decision making needs to be different uh, in an agile organization or an organization with greater agility as compared to those rooted in traditional ways. 
I mean, uh, I can't even think anymore that the number of years of experience or seniority makes any difference with, with the kind of decision. So just yesterday, uh, you know Mahesh Lal. So Mahesh and I, we are good friends. We were, we were speaking yesterday and we were talking about, hey, you know what, the amount of experience that we have gathered in 10 years, uh, someone mm-hmm. who's, let's say, 15 years experience right now, maybe the amount of information that the two of us have because of the way the information age is changing is pretty much the same. So we are pretty much at the same level of experience. But that also means that when we have 15 years of experience, that will be equivalent to someone who has seven years of experience because the amount of knowledge they would have gained and the experience they would have faced would have exponentially increased. So this thing about seniority and experience, it's that gap is just closing in every day. So it, it doesn't even make sense that someone who has to be senior has to make a decision. You can have someone who's who's like fresh out of college, but their knowledge is just too uh, is much better than exactly. what you have. That's that's possible. Exactly, exactly. So it's about the the knowledge, uh, which is the latest knowledge, and also the relevance of the experience. I mean, you yeah. could be coming from manufacturing background, uh, and if you are put to, to manage knowledge work, uh, mm-hmm. you have to undergo a steep learning curve. Uh, before you can say that, yes, I can meaningfully contribute to decision making. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and in, a, in a VUCA environment, you will encounter situations which you have never faced before. Absolutely. And I think the leader's attitude at that point in time it should be is this, look, I don't have the answer. Can mm-hmm. we all sit together and figure out what is the best way to tackle this? Yeah. I mean, since, since we are talking about leadership, we definitely cannot move away from servant leadership. And I've, I've had like people coming and telling me, oh, servant leadership is this new way of, of leadership. And I've said, yeah, yeah, for sure. It is so new. It is only from the 1970s. I mean, it, it's funny for me to just realize that people are, are embracing a concept from the 1970s only in the 2000s. They haven't really realized that this has been around since such a long time. And I have seen this uh, in other ways also. So I, I do this presentation called You Were Never Waterfall, which is basically just presenting the 1969 paper from Vincent Royce and making, giving some clarity about what waterfall was, at least in his mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I speak about one of the principles being involved, the customer, people are just shocked because they believe that this principle came from the manifesto, which was 2001, which is no, this has been around since even before 1969. It was just presented in 69. So for me, this this entire, I know we are digressing a little, but there are all of these theories which are way, way old. And these are like good applications of how management and leadership are supposed to work. But we are just realizing it now that or other people are learning about these things now. I mean, for me, this, these are things that we should be learning in college. Our syllabus should change. We, we won't go there right now. But this is exactly where we are seeing the knowledge gap. So servant leadership, how important does that become when it comes to accepting agility in organizations? Let me address the customer part first, Vishal. I think that's mm-hmm. an important point for me to talk about. Then, of course, I'll talk about the servant leadership. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, as I said, during the second industrial revolution, uh, customer did not have a voice on the table. Uh, customer purchased whatever the organization produced. And uh, I think that is the reason why, even though the customer concept was there, was never embraced because people took the customer for granted, could take the customer for granted, and the customer had limited choices. 
Mm-hmm. It was all about fulfilling needs rather than getting into uh, an overall experience, which is yeah. what today is. Uh, so, so now uh, with customers having more choices and especially uh, with the internet coming in and how uh, that has given the customer a lot of choices, a voice uh, with respect to having a say in the social media, uh, and, and essentially being able to engage directly with the organization which customers uh, in the industrial revolution number two would never think of. Oh, yeah. uh, they only had to engage with the, the, the distributor who provided the food or the service, yeah. uh, never with the organization. Right? Yeah. So I, I think, think that mindset of taking the customer for granted uh, you know, is, is still unfortunately prevalent uh, in some organizations. They think they know what the customer want, but they're never really close to understanding the customer's pain points. Yeah. Uh, or many organizations just focus on the happy path for the customer. Uh, the alternate scenarios, etc., are not catered to, and if something goes wrong, the customer is left in a loop. That's really one of the areas which, again, uh, is is a challenge when when I work with uh, uh, organizations uh, when they are undergoing change. Yeah. Right? So that's just one point point I wanted to highlight. I I think I've I've told this to you before, right? That Twitter for me is like the ultimate customer support system, and I couldn't have even imagined about this in the second industrial revolution, but today. I don't even bother to go on the telephone numbers and the uh, email addresses on their website. It's always Twitter. If I have to complain, it's on Twitter. Yep. And and they better attend to that because the whole world is seeing that complaint. Uh, yes. Right? Uh, uh, well, un- uh, so, unless unless it's a government organization, they don't reply. They uh, never reply. Well, well, let's just leave that <laughs> apart. Let's leave monopolies apart. You know? yeah, okay. But I think we uh, you know, they are bound to pay attention to a customer complaint, yeah, especially if it's it's just available to everyone. See, the, so the power equation has completely shifted to the customer is more powerful. And organizations are slowly beginning to recognize that. Uh, but that, that recognition is coming slowly and painfully. Mm. Um, so, so that's about the customer. On servant leadership, yeah. Mm. See, again, this goes back to that sense of entitlement uh, that I am the thinker, so uh, I can tell you what to do. Yeah. So there's no question of servant leadership. It's, as we say, command and control. Mm-hmm. I command that you do this and you just do that. Uh, and that mindset is still uh, you know, prevalent in many, many organizations. But servant leadership is exactly the opposite of that, which means that you are putting the needs of a team over your own needs as a leader. Yeah? And what you believe is that if the team becomes successful in achieving their outcomes, you as a leader obviously will become successful. So your success as a leader it is tied to the success of the team. And what servant leadership means is that you are doing whatever it takes to help the team become successful. Mm-hmm. So leaders ask me when I coach them on this, okay, but what does it mean in terms of a behavior? And I tell them, you start off with just one thing, is to ask the team, or the people you are interacting with, please tell me what can I do to help you perform your job or your role better. Mm-hmm. And when they highlight impediments or lack of skills or whatever that might be, which they think if that is addressed, it will help them perform better. The leader, because of his or her capability to influence uh, 
things which happen within an organization. This leader is well placed to remove those impediments or to provide the necessary trainings, the other resources which the team might need to help them to perform their job better. Mm -hmm. And to me, this really is the essence of servant leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So with this newfound meaning, okay, with, with leadership and uh, uh, how does this change the management activities? And when I say management activities, this is purely the activities and not the management as a group or manager as a person. How does this change the management activities? And I, I do understand that a lot of this has to be trust-based. So trust becomes like an intrinsic value. So you trust your teams that, hey, they they have the right skills or they have the ability and capabilities to do something. And that's why you're asking them, tell me what I can do to help you rather than telling them exactly what they're supposed to do. So a lot of this is trust-based. However, there are certain instances, like for example, last week, uh, there was an editor's pick uh, in LinkedIn, uh, which was an article about show your boss that you're actually working uh, during, the, during the pandemic or working from home. Or uh, even the gentleman who suggested that we work uh, 60 hours a week, there was another statement that was made where uh, he said, especially when it comes to Indians, we are not very disciplined with working from home. I mean, these are the statements or these are certain things which when it gets published in uh, places like Forbes, it becomes a mandate or this becomes a norm where trust takes a back seat. And that's where I, I, and all of this is basically backed by empirical evidence, right? They have the data. They're not saying it just like that. They have the data. And that's where I start thinking, how does management really change? Or what is the shift required in management, even in this space where data exists, but you're not seeing the values that you really want to bring in? How does that work? There are multiple points uh, you have raised, uh, you know, in 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 uh, this question, Vishal. Uh, but let me address this point about uh, about the trust part. Uh, I think trust is something which uh, which is inherent to us, and I think in everything that we do, there is an inherent element of trust. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I switch on an electric switch, I'm trusting the fact that I'm not going to get an electric shock, and it's just going to turn the light off. Right? Yeah. Or when I go out on the street and I'm standing next to someone, uh, I'm trusting that that person is saying and won't stab me. Right? I'm giving extreme examples. Yeah. Or, or uh, when I'm driving, I hope the person doesn't dash my car from behind. Exactly. Right. So trust is trust is something which we all work on, and trust is an, a very very important element of our, our organization because uh, people who are doing the work uh, and people who are in leadership positions they may be apart. And therefore, you have to trust people to do the right thing, right? But for that to happen, uh, there are a few things that uh, that enable that, and, and, and they are very, very important. The two variables, according to me, are autonomy and alignment. Right. Okay. Alignment refers to the purpose that uh, is there that, that needs to be fulfilled or the outcome that we need to achieve. Mm -hmm. And is your team aligned? Yeah, or have you aligned the team to making sure that they understand that this is what we are going for? Mm -hmm. This is what success means for us, and this is what we need to do. Yeah. And autonomy 
is of course giving them the freedom to figure out what is the best way to get there and you're not dictating that path in terms of how you get there mm-hmm. right let the team figure it out sure you can contribute you can give it ideas but finally finally it's a, it's a joint decision that you make in terms of how you want to move forward or on smaller things let's just leave it to the team you don't even bother about that you just delegate it to them completely right mm-hmm. so autonomy and alignment must go hand in right if you have an imbalance there you have a problem <laughs> so yeah. yeah when you say alignment isn't that equivalent to transparency and being transparent with with the kind with the purpose and making sure everyone is aware of it it's not just aware vishal mm-hmm. transparency and visibility again is very important yeah right why is that important because really if something is not going right yeah mm-hmm. it's very easy to find it out yeah and you can course correct very quickly and there is a single source of truth for every information that's out there mm-hmm. there are no multiple versions yeah like we see uh, traditionally in or in organizations right there are things broken on the ground but some manager is still reporting green status to the boss because otherwise he would get dinged yeah, or the watermelon report right the watermelon yeah, reporting watermelon. is brilliant exactly so so that's why we want visibility and transparency so that there are no versions of 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 the tr- uh, mm. multiple versions of the truth yeah mm. but alignment to me is more about that genuine buy in mm-hmm. right that i i buy into this purpose yeah and and i believe in this and we are all going to work towards that and mm-hmm. visibility uh, and transparency is a huge enabler to make that happen yes mm-hmm. and the thing where you speak about that you need to give what feedback uh, so i i took it in a slightly different way so when you say that you have to course correct that course correction happens because of the feedback that that comes and yes, the feedback is something that you have to kind of measure at regular intervals and then see if you want to change your way to proceed absolutely sure right see i think the key is to recognize when things are not going wrong or uh uh you know you're getting something which is different from what you have initially planned in terms of the direction mm-hmm. and how can you change course quickly to uh adapt to that new information which has come in that really is 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 very important see mm-hmm. i think the feedback bit is so important uh if you look at and i mentioned this in my book if you look at some of the major disasters which have happened in the world uh people on the ground knew there was something wrong mm-hmm. but people were just scared to report it upstairs or indifference that this is not my problem this is somebody else's problem why do i care mm-hmm. so there is no alignment there there is no sense of ownership alignment leads to a sense of ownership mm-hmm. right and then a disaster happens be it a right. plane crash or uh, you know be it an oil spill or you know be it something else mm-hmm. uh, i have an example of a the berlin airport where you know you go to the berlin airport which is there right now it is you know the pune airport uh, you know will look world class in front of the berlin <laughs> airport and it is is the is the tegel airport you said uh but they constructed a new airport and oh, they were yeah. about to go live yeah. they were about to go live just a week before they went live you know all the shops had set up uh, yeah. you know their 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 operations there and they're just about to begin and then somebody noticed there's something wrong 
and they dug further and further and they just realized this, this whole thing is not built correctly yes i know that story i've read about it and that airport is still not functional that yeah it's still not functional in fact i i think there was also one report where the lights don't turn off because they don't have switches and that's why the airport is always lit but the airport is not operational uh i i have read about that there, i think there's a whole wikipedia page about explaining what went wrong and the entire sequence of events yeah i remember that exactly so this is all about you know people just not wanting to report failure or somehow you know uh, the progress is masked uh, and and the challenges which are there are not visible mm-hmm. see i think if there is alignment uh, and if 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 there is the psychological safety as we call it in terms of reporting challenges mm-hmm. early enough uh, so that somebody can do something i think that is very important and why people don't do that is because again a leadership behavior which is a very bothersome behavior is that when something goes wrong a leader is looking to catch somebody's neck to put mm-hmm. the blame on yeah for that thing going wrong and my view is that and i agree with the uh, you know edward deming who, who said that 95% of issues can be traced to yeah. systemic factors to system rather than to the individual person yeah and the systemic factors include how you reward people are you punishing the right behaviors mm-hmm. are you rewarding the wrong behaviors that's a systemic factor the person is not to blame for that Yeah. and of course 5% of the time people can they make mistakes etc but do you have mechanisms to catch that mistake early mm. yeah so i think this is where uh, you know the, the the way you manage things the way you look at things has to change where definitely there is oversight yeah uh, but there is no interference right uh, so 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 alignment and let's say feedback that that gives like a good sense of management directive let's say if it, at least one of the directives for when it comes to agility the alignment especially i'm trying to uh, link it with that is also having alignment in a kind of a mindset or a mental model and a cultural aspect of organizations and of individuals right so unless everyone has that similar mindset and the organization has a some way is some culture that they have defined for themselves this alignment does not happen so these two aspects yeah. and we speak about mindset and culture a lot when it comes to agile but this is highly important when it comes to having agility yeah, i still believe that people don't understand mindset and culture as much as we would want them to understand these are buzzwords which we use but they are still mm-hmm. misunderstood uh and i know that you speak about this in in your book about mindset uh, is to individuals and culture is to organization can you elaborate yeah. on that a bit sure sure before i get into that right one of the things which i want to highlight is one of the key uh impediments to alignment vision is this mm-hmm. that in most organizations people are made to compete against people mm-hmm. and the bell curve is bell curve. clearly uh, something which is still prevailing uh and and people are are judged based on that so what the bell curve does is is really pits people against one another mm-hmm. right because only few people can win and the others compulsorily have to lose in a relative way yeah so suppose the bell curve says that 20% of the people the lowest 20% in terms of performance will not get a salary hike or will get sacked or whatever that is right Mm-hmm. i don't want to be in that 20% as as an employee 
Yeah. Yeah. I somehow want to make sure that I'm not there in that 20%. Mm-hmm. So what am I going to do? I'm going to put my self-interest over anything else. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is a huge barrier to alignment because if you're not bothered about the organization or the team, your first concern is yourself because it's a question of survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So, you know, you have to remove these kind of things which which impede alignment, which uh, which we do not have uh, the or do not provide the incentive for people uh, to 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 have a sense of ownership and uh, associate with the purpose of the organization. So that's one part of it. Right? Mm. Coming to the mindset and culture. So as I mentioned in my book, right, mindset. Uh, there is no universal definition of of mindset, um, but <clears throat> and I have studied a lot. Uh, about this uh, uh, while I was writing my book and I've come to my own conclusion that mindset essentially is made up of four things in our in our head, right? The assumptions, uh, the beliefs, mm-hmm. the perceptions that we carry and the values that we have. And all of these four things go on to define the, the type of mindset you have. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Linda Rising, uh, I think has very nicely called out you know the difference between uh, you know what she says is the growth mindset which is essentially the agile mindset yeah. versus a fixed mindset yeah, yeah. Um, but if you were for example to uh, uh, take take uh, an example of, of, of a belief uh, which 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 is about agility or uh, about uh, traditional ways of working right in a traditional ways of working, the belief would be that, oh, if I report a problem, I will get punished. Mm-hmm. Right? But the belief, if you were having an agile mindset, is that, wait a minute, I think it is my responsibility to report that problem because if we don't, we as a team fail. Uh, and, 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 you know, I feel safe, uh, uh, you know, to report that problem because it gives us a chance for us to bring it up and to solve it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so clearly you can have uh, you take any any factor and you can twist it to 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 uh, orient it towards a fixed mindset or towards a growth mindset, and it is the set of assumptions, beliefs, perceptions, and values. If you have those uh, which are aligned to the agile values and principles, mm-hmm. then you can say that you have an agile mindset. Wow. I mean, that's the best explanation I can give. Vishal, <laughs> what yeah. what a mindset, right? Uh, so mindset is is an individual thing, and what you want uh, to happen within an organization is for people to have as much of common assumptions, values, beliefs, and, and perceptions as much as possible. Right. Mm. So a lot of people have a lot of mental models, etc. Will you be able to suspend them when you come to work? Uh, uh, right. I, I, that 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 becomes very very important. Yeah. Culture is essentially, I mean, to simplify it, it's the mindset of the organization as a course. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's again based on, you know, values, uh, principles, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, somebody just said, uh, you know, defined culture as saying that it's the way things get done around here, uh, which encapsulates really everything. You know? yeah. But uh, the important thing to note is that mindsets of individuals get influenced by culture. And the culture of the organization also gets shaped by the mindset of people. And how is the connectioning happening between the two is through 
behaviors and the outcomes which come from behaviors. Yeah. So, <clears throat> for example, uh, if 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 the organization comes to know that some employee has got punished uh, because the employee reported uh, uh, you know a problem and the boss just blamed that employee for it, you know, killing the messenger uh, syndrome, then it is going to impact the mindset of everyone in the organization that, wait a minute, you know, uh, I think if I report something, uh, uh, you know, maybe I will also get punished. And that then drives their behaviors. So, uh, so, so mindset and culture definitely get reflected in behaviors. And this is what, again, <clears throat> leaders need to watch out for in terms of which behaviors they want to encourage and recognize and uh, which behaviors they want to discourage and avoid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the best quotes which I like is that the culture of an organization is defined by the worst behavior a leader is willing to tolerate. Oh, yeah. Right? And I think the point again is leaders themselves need to look at that behavior, mm -hmm. their own behaviors. Often leaders are expecting people to change on the ground, but they still continue to exhibit you know, old command control behaviors. That's a that's a recipe for disaster. Uh, it's, it's not going to take your agility anywhere uh, uh, other than make it worse. Yeah. So, and that will also be something like an organization that claims to be diverse, but let's say all of the leadership positions are all men. Exactly. And then then it, it you're not really uh, true to your values, and it it does not define your culture. Exactly. 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 Mm -hmm. So I think if there's a disconnect between <clears throat> what leaders say. Uh, that they are or what they do and versus what is actually happening, people lose faith in leadership. Right. People, when leaders don't walk the talk. Mm. So first thing, you know, when you are introducing changes is for leaders to walk the talk. And that's not easy for many. That's not easy. Yeah. And since we are speaking about what is easy for many, one thing that I have found really difficult, and even with all the culture and mindset uh, in, in place, right? Well, I, not in place, but... I understand that ultimately we have to empower the workforce and that's where we speak about autonomy. And if I have to take that in, let's say the kind of work that I do, we need self-organizing team who are cross-functional working as a feature team. There's one thing that I struggle with a lot is teaching teams to be self-organized. So the one thing that I have heard quite a number of times is if I'm in meetings and uh, this thing where people may say, just tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll do it. Yeah. And for me, the moment I hear this, I'm like, no, that's not how it's supposed to happen. Because if I'm supposed to direct you how to do your best job, then there's no autonomy and then you don't self-organize, which means I become the bottleneck. Someday if I'm not there, things don't work. And uh, for me, the way I think it is, a lot of that is pretty much a mindset or a mental model for a number of individuals because the way we have grown up and the way we grow up or the way our education system works where a number of times we don't question. For us, it is more of just taking in information and uh, spitting it out on an answer sheet, for example. But that continues and that continues till the time we, we start working and then it, it just never changes. So I found this to be one of the most difficult aspects to change on this very low level of just self-organization, for example. Uh, yeah, I mean, how do you take this? Vishal, it's a topic which is very dear to my heart. Uh, I think about it a lot and it's one of the 
biggest systemic issues, uh, in my view, which is yet to be resolved, uh, which I think uh, is a constraint for organizations uh, when they want to improve agility. Mm. is because of this mindset of, uh, tell me what to do. And it all starts from our from the way uh, we get educated, right from our schooling days. Right? Mm-hmm. Let's say you look at a child who has yet to go to school, say a two, three-year-old toddler. You look at the behavior of that child. The child is curious, wanting to explore, wanting to try new things. Even if the child falls down or get, gets hurt, yeah, he or she, you know, with some consolation, is able to uh, pick himself up, herself up, yeah. And uh, always willing to try new things, always willing to experiment. Mm. There's so much zest for learning, you know, based on curiosity. Mm. And you look at the same child after he or she has gone to school for about five years. And look what happens to that child. Very subdued, very measured. Yeah. Uh, that, that, That behavior which the toddler exhibited is no longer there. Yeah. Maybe we call that maturity or I don't know what it is, but a lot of the things are taken away from that child once the child starts going to school. Mm-hmm. My hypothesis is this, that the British designed education system, uh, which is there in many countries, including us, mm-hmm. was designed to produce workers for factories and clerks to serve the British Empire. Yeah which means that the whole education system is about taking orders mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and believing that there is only one right answer. Uh, and, and it allows no room for creativity or experimentation or challenging uh, you know, a position which a higher authority like a teacher or a professor can take. Uh, you know, whatever they say is supposed to be the gospel truth. Mm-hmm. And we grow up with that mindset. And that mindset again gets reinforced in a hierarchy where the thinker and doers are separate. That's why, uh, you know, in an organization like ThoughtWorks, where we expect people to be behaving with a high level of alignment and we provide high level of autonomy to people and teams. Mm-hmm. Laterals struggle in ThoughtWorks because they come from the same mindset because all the years that they have worked elsewhere in traditional organizations, their bosses have always told them what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and to make that mental shift to say that I don't have a boss here. I am actually, I need to behave as though I'm the owner of the company, which means alignment, you know, to the purpose of the organization. Right? Uh, to me, uh, it's so deep rooted, uh, not only in our schooling, but our organizations, which are also run uh, as hierarchies are actually cementing that fact. Uh, that you need to look for directions and you should ask. And therefore, when you throw somebody like that and you suddenly give them a lot of autonomy and alignment, right? they will struggle. Uh, they will struggle because it's a big change in mindset that needs to happen. And I think that's where leaders have to play this role to nurture uh, you know, this thinking yeah. and to give the reassurance and the safety net you know, to the people saying that, wait a minute, I- I'm not going to give you directions. You try it out. If you fail, I have your back, right? Uh, uh, so, so it it takes a lot of effort from leaders to be able to bring you know this this mindset change. Uh, and uh, I I definitely see that as one of the key responsibilities of leaders 
uh, when they are embark- embarking on this journey of like uh, leadership it is amazing how everything like ties back to leadership somewhere uh, yeah it's, it's highly important it is because they have so much influence you know yeah. uh, they can influence a lot of things and that's really what makes uh, a leader a leader is the sphere mm-hmm. of influence that the influence yeah i think let, let's take a break uh, with that uh but when we come back let's deep dive into what actually enables people to be more agile and everything that we have spoken about how can people get more value out of it so when we return let's speak about that so sure, sure right if you like what you're hearing then do subscribe to this podcast for more of enterprise joy You can get a complete list of applications where this podcast is available on anchor.fm/enterprisejoy or on our website www.enterprisejoy.com. Folks who prefer a more visual content can save the Enterprise Joy podcast playlist on YouTube and you can also support this podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com/enterprisejoy. We are happy to bring great content for you that can help you and your organization be more awesome. All right, welcome back everyone. This is the final segment of our wonderful show with the wonderful guest Sunil Mundra and we have been talking about enterprise agility. And in the last segment we uh, we stopped at uh, how people are the most important assets when it comes to agility. So, one thing that is very very important is agility ultimately is a response to change. But change also comes with resistance. and it's usually the people who resist change so my question to you sunil how do we overcome resistance hmm. excellent question uh, vishal uh, my view on resistance to change is that it's just a feedback to the change that has been introduced so i look at resistance whatever i see as feedback and you need to understand the sources of resistance to be able to address that mm-hmm. resistance happens when when the question of what's in it for me mm-hmm. is not answered properly to my satisfaction mm-hmm. so when that question is not answered then people are not clear about how change is going to be beneficial for them mm. and when people don't see something which is benefiting them or don't believe that something is going to benefit them rather it's going to make things worse for them mm-hmm. because they might have to learn a new skill uh or they might just have to report it to someone else Uh, or uh, maybe their incompetence gets exposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, it's about pulling people out of comfort zone, and getting out of comfort zone is essentially uncomfortable for many, many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I think it's very important to understand um, where that resistance is coming from. Mm-hmm. But I'll talk about how. 
best to overcome that or even prevent that to whatever extent possible. But before I do that, I think we also need to understand that not everybody changes at the same pace or embraces change equally. Mm-hmm. So we have this adoption curve, which also applies to change, right. where you have the innovators, the early adopters, the early, the early adopters. majority, yeah. the majority and the laggards. I speak for my book in my last chapter. Right? Mm-hmm. So there will be some people who will embrace change a little bit later than others, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. So we need to recognize that and give them, uh, you know, their time, uh, address their concerns, uh, and and treat people in those five categories a little bit differently. Like for example, innovators, you want to make them, and early adopters, you want to make them the the, the internal champions uh, to 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 uh, work with the others uh, to reassure them and to show them how change is done. Right, um, but. I think when you're introducing change, the key point for me is that are you involving people when you are creating this roadmap for change? Mm -hmm. Are you being transparent as a leader about why we need to embark on this change? Sure, as we said, right, uh, change is evolutionary, but in the initial phase, the change could be a big one, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe perceived as a big change. Mm -hmm. So, it's important for the leader to really highlight the need for change and get buy-in from people uh, and give people a voice Mm -hmm. so that they can raise their apprehensions, uh, they can can call out the risks in the change uh, that's coming up. Whatever that they might see, I mean, it's still an input. Mm -hmm. And somehow the leaders need to make sure that people are heard uh, and if there are clusters of information or themes which come up from the feedback which people have given, mm-hmm. then to the communication strategy, how do leaders address you know those concerns or those queries? Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that's 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 a great starting point. Right. And then, as I said, you actually should create a success story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, that really is, is is a very, very important element in shifting the mindset to say, wait a minute, I think, uh, you know, this, this new way of doing things or this new change looks good. And maybe, uh, you know, I am now willing to reconsider my position about this change and perhaps I'm even willing to give it a try. Mm-hmm. Even if you can achieve that with a small success story and you know, publicize it across the organization and create some excitement and buzz around that, uh, you know that's that's a that's a great way to really get people excited about change. So two parts to it. One is you know getting people excited about the change and creating the appetite for change, and the other part is addressing the uncertainties and the insecurities, uh, you know, which 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 come with change. And you have to work on both uh, for change to be uh, 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 made more palatable. Uh, there is no going away from the fact that there will be pain. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think that's 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 a reality. Uh, but how, as a leader uh, or uh, as as uh, a, a internal champion, as an influencer, you are able to uh, reduce that pain to the maximum extent possible. I think that is very important. Mm, right. So uh, you do speak about what's in it for me, uh, and the way I see it, it's ultimately the goal is to build a learning organization. 
and one of the ways or not maybe not the only ways but one of the ways of uh, building a learning organization is if the individuals learn then the organization learns uh, can that be equated to growth for individuals or can that be the only thing that gets uh, equated with growth which ultimately becomes like an intrinsic motivator for uh, for individuals can that be like the ultimate goal that we have uh short answer yes that's that's exactly what we want to do is for individuals to see growth uh, as growth in learning growth in experiences mm -hmm. growth in their ability to influence uh, you know certain things right and um, but what is happening in many organizations is there is only one growth path and that growth path is defined as climbing up the hierarchy mm -hmm. and that's the only way to go or that is what is recognized as success or as uh, as uh, something which is tangible in terms of growth right. so for that to happen uh, you need to have people who are passionate about their craft mm -hmm. and only then you know people will see growth in the learning my problem with many organizations is this how many people uh, you know i often wonder have joined the it industry because of their love for technology or for coding or for whatever they are doing for example as a ba how much do you love solving client problems mm -hmm. right uh, so when that is not there you taken up a job just because you look at it as a as a way to earn your uh, living then you are not going to be interested in learning based growth mm -hmm. because you don't care about coding you are doing it because it's a job uh, that pays you well mm -hmm. right and i think this is where we have a problem because many organizations are really not able to check or a certain that passion uh, when when they hire people which uh, i think from my 10 years of being in thoughtworks i can tell you that you will generally not get hired in thoughtworks unless you show passion for your craft mm -hmm. regardless of whatever role you are in suppose you are going to be a client partner then then then, then what is your passion for uh, you know relationship building with the client and and, and growing an account etc Uh, if i mean i got hired in thoughtworks and i was told this afterwards because of not only my senior client facing experience but because of my passion for solving client problems mm -hmm. i had no clue of what agile lean was until i i came to thoughtworks and i was told that you will learn all of that of the job today i derive my satisfaction mm -hmm. from the learnings that that i undergo uh, every so often almost on a daily basis because to me that is growth when i acquire new knowledge why because i'm passionate about it mm -hmm. so <clears throat> so i think uh, you know to for an organization to become a learning organization and for people to see uh, growth in form of learning uh, or in form of taking on challenging experiences uh, passion for the craft is key right 
Absolutely. It's not an easy problem to solve. It's not uh, an easy problem to solve. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when you have so many employees that you already carry, uh, what do you do with them? Uh, you can't suddenly build passion for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the recruitment, therefore, when you're hiring new people, it, you know, it, it, this becomes a very, very important consideration when you recruit people yeah. in your organization. Absolutely. I mean, but since we, since we are on this topic, I did manage to get a few enablers for agility. And I mean, enablers for people. And for the same reason as to what can enable people to grow in whatever their definition of growth is. Uh, so I do have a few uh, of these. And I was wondering if sure. I can I can do some kind of a well I I can't call it a rapid fire because this will take some time to answer, but let's call it a rapid fire when when it comes to like uh, explaining these things. So I have a few things, and I'll just uh, you may call it buzzwords. A lot of these are, but these buzz buzzwords have like internal deep meaning to it. So what I would wow. like from you is uh, explain what this is. Uh, that's the first part, and the second part. What can be, let's say, your preferred way or one of the ways of how this can be incorporated uh, okay. with leaders, with people, with organizations in any which way? All right. I'll give it a shot. Sure. All right. So the first one I have is humble inquiry. Humble inquiry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, Professor Edgar Schein, uh, you know, one of the experts in organization development, wrote a whole book on this topic. Mm-hmm. And humble inquiry essentially means, as a leader, I am genuinely caring about the person with whom I'm interacting, and I'm caring about their well-being to ask them uh, how they are, how they are doing, do they need any help, Uh, from a position of utmost humility, not from a position of privilege as a leader or an entitlement or just as a formality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you do that with utmost sincerity, uh, and you act on it as well, then you hear something and there's an action that comes out, right? It becomes a very, very powerful tool uh, for uh, people to be motivated, for people to build trust, uh, and and uh, it just creates. Uh, it just takes the relationship, uh, you know, to a new level. Uh, between you know the person doing the humble inquiry and the person who's responding to it, right. and for this to happen, uh, I think uh, uh, empathy is the key. Uh, you have to really try and put yourself in the other person's shoes and suspend your mental models uh, and ask that question with with genuine care and concern for right. that other person. Only then humble inquiry is effective. Cool. The next one we have on the list is adhocracy. Mm-hmm. So my understanding of adhocracy is that it's it's about uh, flexibility in the structure and about self-organization. Mm-hmm. And adhoc- and again, uh, it also encompasses informal networks within an organization. And what we know from evidence is that regardless of the structure that any organization has and whatever level of agility they may be, there is of course an informal network within an organization. Mm-hmm. I view adhocracy as an attribute of a structure. It's not a structure by itself. Just the way 
uh, we would view bureaucracy as an attribute of a tall hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Right? So whatever structure you might have that works for you, uh, you know, there needs to be, of course, an element of autocracy and how much that needs to be. What is that balance between bureaucracy and autocracy is very context specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely autocracy is needed because it talks about self-organization and agility and of course agile ways of working also emphasize self-organization so that that is really really important uh, mm-hmm. to have uh, but again it's not binary right like either you have autocracy or you don't it's not like that yeah there are there's going to be multiple shades of autocracy yeah. And there are going to be areas where it's going to be a little bit less on a bureaucracy, a little bit more. I mean, you can't do away completely with bureaucracy. You need a little bit of that to hold things together, to you know, get some work done, which is which is which is unavoidable. Uh, you know, which has a lot of paperwork, which needs you know a, a maker checker concept in some areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there is going to be some some bureaucracy. So uh, the appropriate level of autocracy is something I think which is very very context specific. Uh, but my point is that it's an attribute uh, mm-hmm. of a structure which which enables uh, you know self organization, quicker decision making, fast feedback loops, uh, uh, and 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 uh, is is flexible enough to adopt the change. Uh, and I I would call that otherwise. So. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. All right. Next one we have is emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Again, this is a this is a, a something which uh, I think everybody in the organization needs to have. More important for leaders uh, when 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 they are dealing with people, uh, but also within the team members as well. Uh, finally, I think we all need to recognize that we as human beings uh, we have feelings, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and. You know, some days uh, we feel good. There are days when we feel a little bit low. Uh, and how do we empathize with those situations? How do we support each other in times uh, when we are a bit low? Uh, I think, you know, this becomes very important in creating that culture of a community within the organization. Uh, uh, and, and of course, in terms of you know, building trust, building a good rapport, uh, you know, emotional intelligence is the key. Uh, it's it's moving away from that mindset of viewing people as resources, uh, faceless characters, or as machines, uh, but to genuinely, uh, you know, see them as as people as they are, with all their strengths and with all their imperfections, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 dealing with people as people rather than as a cog in the wheel, uh, or mm-hmm. uh, or as something which is uh, uh, something which is like a machine. Yeah, back to that point. So. Yeah, I mean, I find it very surprising that although we know that emotional intelligence or emotional quotient is highly, highly important uh, in, in today's workplace, but that and that aspect of uh, let's say self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, the relationship management, these are still things which people need to explore and explore a lot more. And this is beyond just coming and doing our daily jobs and going back. This needs deliberate practice in order to make this happen exactly exactly it, it does take deliberate practice and it does take a few enablers as well yeah. coming back to my pet peeve around bell curve <laughs> or when you, when you make people compete against each other mm-hmm. why will i feel emo- emotionally connected to you man i'm more worried about my survival 
So if I have to pull you down to survive, I mean, for me to win, if you have to lose, then so be it. Exactly. So where then 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 where where is the emotion bit? Where is where is that room for that empathy, that care, uh, anything which relates to you know uh, exhibiting good emotions for someone? Now, because and that is that is the primary reason why politics happens in organization is people you know are competing against each other, mm-hmm. uh, and and therefore that emotional bit uh, in the relationship just goes out. Uh, you mm-hmm. see everybody as your adversary. <laughs> Uh, because everybody is competing against each other, right? Uh, it's a big problem. It's it's really a big problem. I think this 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 competing people against people has to go. Mm. I have not done enough research to really understand where it really came from. Uh, but uh, you know, it's it's an absolute detriment uh, to building uh, a team spirit. And today, it's all about team, uh, mm. you know, rather than individuals, right? Uh, uh, but but but. This is a big impediment towards that. Right. I think somewhere it has its origins in uh, when we had the tribe culture, right? So you have these two tribes who are always competing with each other or trying to uh, yeah. uh, conquer one another. And somewhere it's just become like an inherent culture or inherent mindset or mental model, as you say, for or for the individuals of the time. Yeah. But, but it it's, goes it's back way to old. It, it goes back to our education system as well. We, we yeah. pit people, people. You know, you rank people. You rank rank people. people. Yeah. Somebody is number one. That means somebody, uh, nobody else can be number one, right? Then you've got to be number two or three. Right? We reward, uh, you know, individual heroics. And, and that we see that so commonly uh, uh, that an external person comes and rewards somebody who has done a heroic act. And what you're doing by that is you're saying, if this person is the winner, you're treating automatically as less than that person or as losers. Mm. So it's a zero-sum game when you actually do that. Uh, and I think people don't recognize that. that. That's so great since you mentioned that. So when I was in school, my best friend was the class stopper. And like class stopper throughout, uh, ever since I've known him. And right. my father, to motivate me, he used to say, well, if he can do it, so can you. And, mm-hmm. and my reply to my father used to be, yes, I can, but then he'll feel bad, so I don't want to come first. And that was my emotional attachment to my best friend that I don't want to come first because he'll feel bad. I, I don't want to study that much. Obviously, wow. that was all big fun, but uh, yeah, my father didn't like that. <laughs> okay, but since we are on this uh, this topic, uh, sorry. Yes. The next one was actually psychological safety. And I think it, it very nicely uh, fits back into everything that we just discussed. Uh, how do we bring in psychological safety? I think it's very, very important. Uh, this again uh, is a leadership responsibility. You know, it all comes down to those uh, those things about leadership, Vishal. Uh, <laughs> somehow, right? Uh, how how do you react and respond when uh, when when something goes wrong or when somebody delivers bad news? Mm-hmm. And the response has to be in a way in which you are not uh, in any way indicating even a blame, like even a raised eyebrow, you know, can send a wrong signal. Mm. Yeah. So you've got to be very, very careful about how uh, you you are treating bad news or failure. Mm-hmm. Right. 
and that is a is, it is a deep mindset change required for that that you need to recognize that people are uh, imperfect beings yeah mm-hmm. that people uh, try their best i mean you look at the retrospective crime rate mm-hmm. it addresses that bit yeah yeah that everybody did the best they could given they could given the situation what they knew the, the circumstances that you know they were there with the, whatever resources they had at their disposal etc i mean just look at this right uh, who goes to work a same person i i'm talking about <laughs> who goes to work thinking today i'm just going to go out to work and just slack off yeah or i'm going to just make mess things around and you know purposely uh, you know do something wrong and just or just i'm going to work. make someone else's life miserable i mean i i don't think anyone says uh, thinks about that when they go to work that today i'm going to make that person's life miserable nobody does that nobody. at least the same person do it you know mm. so the point is as human beings you know we always strive to learn something new we always strive to act right mm. mistake happens yeah right as as many of those mistakes you can tie it back to systemic practice mm. yeah we need to really focus on when you're looking at something going wrong etc it's not about the who it's about the what and that's really the way to build in psychological safety and i think it's a pattern of consistent behaviors which is needed i mean you one time you know you you indicate that you know you're blaming the person your, your whole effort towards building psychological safety is gone and remember even one instance it can spread across the organization mm. uh, and, and and it can impact the psychological safety of the entire company right. so i think this is thing which which has to be done very very consciously by leaders when they react to bad news or to mm-hmm. mistakes right which actually brings me very close to the next one the next enabler is experimentation mm-hmm. or rather mm-hmm. feeling safe to conduct experiments absolutely see i think people need to recognize that by definition an experiment means that there is a chance of a failure that's yeah. why it's called an experiment yes right but again we don't approach it that way we mm. all want all our experiments to succeed it is not possible yeah because the nature of an experiment means that it is not going to work yeah and experimentation is necessary because otherwise you will not evolve you will be where you are and experimentations becomes even more important in a complex environment because the first step to addressing complexity is probe right which means that you have to try something mm-hmm. see whether it works it doesn't work see whether you get good feedback or you don't get good feedback and then you amplify that and if right. something doesn't work you are quick enough to kill it yeah and not get emotionally attached to it or fall in the sunk cost trap yeah. or or this is the boss's favorite project so we just have to continue even oh, though we know it's not going to work when sunk right? cost fallacy that's i was amazed the first time i read that and i could just associate so many examples with it and that happens that happens if if you it's, see something failing but just because you have invested time and money into it you continue doing that you create that attachment yeah it's not just about attachment vishal it's about for example taking a hit on the bottom line and with the yeah. pressure which executives have you know to report increase in profit quarter by quarter mm-hmm. you try to delay absorbing that failure in your profit and loss right. account 
Yep. So there are these systemic factors which which also you know lead to this sunk cost fallacy. So that you keep investing mm. uh, uh, so that you don't want to take a loss on your profit. Loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Thinking fast and slow. One of my most favorite books. It's amazing. It's amazing. Okay, so the last one that I have, but at least from a people standpoint, the last one that I have. Uh, so there's a quote that I have from Michael Gelb, and he says, "Over seriousness is a warning sign for mediocrity." And this is a part of the entire statement, but this is uh, this is like the starting of that statement. My question to you: How important is it to have fun at work uh, with regards to enabling agility? i interpret fun to mean that <clears throat> you enjoy being at work yeah okay it does not mean that you're playing table tennis all day uh, <laughs> oh, of course yeah okay. uh, it means that if you need a break uh, you take it mm-hmm. uh, if, if if you want to just go and have a chat with a colleague uh, you can do that essentially mm-hmm. about it's about bringing your whole self to work mm-hmm. uh and and of course uh, uh you know just just uh being relaxed and enjoying what you do mm-hmm. not just your work but enjoying being with your colleagues right and that's when that's when fun happens it's like uh, uh it's 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 like being in a family uh, uh so you are yourself uh, when 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 you are in a safe place mm-hmm. where you are open to uh, being vulnerable uh, where you are open to just being seen as as yourself rather than putting up an act and mm-hmm. so this overseriousness you know that's not normal right we as human beings we are, we are not supposed to be serious all the time and if that happens that means somebody is putting up an act right and i think when you put up an act and when you do that consistently day in day out day in day out it creates a lot of friction it creates a lot of stress for that individual and uh, it it definitely leads to burnout mm-hmm. so people being able to be themselves and just be able to relax just having the freedom to uh, you know do what they think is is fun for them as a mental distraction uh, or anything like that as long as the work gets accomplished as long mm-hmm. as the person is doing on 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 what they have been doing yeah. right uh, the person has the flexibility to enjoy himself or herself even at work and i think this is like again a notion which has been there in organizations that workplace is not a place for me to enjoy okay. people talk about work and personal life separation and all of those things yeah. it oh, all yeah. comes from me. for me the separation between work and personal life is very very blurred yeah I if I have to do something personal at work and if it is not impeding my work I will do it on weekday but if I have to work on a weekend to finish something which is important uh, you know I will do that as well without without you know feeling any kind of pressure mm. yes yeah, so it's not forced but it's uh, it's more coming from within so it it's still it's it's an accepted responsibility kind of a thing exactly, exactly. Mm. and that comes from a sense of uh, you know ownership that comes from a sense of uh having a feeling that you care for your teammates that you know you want everybody to be successful yeah mm-hmm. uh, it's not just about your own success as an individual right, right. so the feeling that we are all in this together uh, there mm-hmm. are so many things which makes that happen right okay but 
There's one enabler that's highly, highly important, at least when it comes to the current information age, and that is technology. Technology mm -hmm. being an enabler to enterprise agility. What's your take on it? I say this with utmost conviction, even though I am not a technologist by training or by profession, mm -hmm. but I understand enough about the impact of technology to be able to say this in based on my experience is that mm -hmm. unless you have technical agility within your organization which is agility related to the IT function and technology mm -hmm. you will not achieve the right level of enterprise agility mm -hmm. and the reason is that today technology is at the core of every business, regardless of the industry that you are in, right? Remember the statement which uh, the ING Bank's CEO made mm -hmm. when he said, "We are a technology company with a banking with business. a banking, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely right." So technology today is at the core of mm -hmm. every business, regardless of the vertical that you come from. Yeah. And unless you give technology its due importance, yeah, it's not going to help you to achieve enterprise agility. In fact, it will be a barrier. It will be a big drag on agility of the organization. Mm -hmm. And this is where you know I have a peeve against those organizations which say, "Oh, we do Scrum, therefore we are agile." Yes, Scrum is good. Scrum will bring in a lot of benefits. But unless you focus on the engineering part of it, the technology part of it, and you know, bring in excellence there. Uh, you are not going to be able to achieve an agility which is sustainable. Absolutely. Right? So technology has been traditionally treated as a, a secondary function. Mm -hmm. It was the case when you know technology was mostly used to do some automated calculations and things like that, or there were systems which were needed just to process information. But today, right, technology is driving strategy. It's at the core mm -hmm. of every single strategy. It's at the core of uh, the ways in which you engage with your customers, it the, it's at the core of your product offerings today. Right. Uh, uh, and and, and uh, if you don't give technology that importance, then that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So I see two basically areas here which uh, organizations need to work on to improve. One is to not treat technology as a cost center. Right. I think because of that, so many anti-pattern behaviors have come in that technology is judged or the success of technology is just based on you know the the, the uh, control of cost or in how minimal cost you know they have managed that function. I think that is not appropriate. Technology deserves a seat uh, on the table with the business, which is the other part where business and technology need to work together. They are mm -hmm. not sitting on two different sides of the table. Agile has tried to do that. It has tried to bring technology and business on the same side of the table when it says. Businesses and developers must work together daily, etc., mm. etc. Right? Yeah. Uh, I think the success criterion for business and technology has to be the same. Right. Yeah. You cannot judge IT or have separate success criteria for IT function and a separate for business function. It's not going to work. Mm. They both have to work towards a common outcome, and success for both has to mean the same thing. Mm. I mean, in fact, uh, we we see so many examples, right, where let's say N26 or Uber and 
these are examples where businesses are driven by technology but they do have their in their business although technology is what they are building their actual revenue comes from a different way but technology becomes like the basis for doing everything that they have so you you cannot move away from it it's highly important and you know with uh, uh, virtual reality artificial intelligence uh, you know all of that coming in technology is going to play a very 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 important role in building these capabilities to sense to adapt and to respond i mean i can see technology playing a very key role in each of these capabilities yeah absolutely okay sunil so we have been talking for a while let me try and summarize everything that we have spoken so far right mm-hmm. so we started off with uh, the differentiating factor between agile and agility we did address the uh, the complex adaptive system and how an organization is a living being uh, we spoke about leadership the importance of leadership that came up a number of times even the mindset and culture uh, the autonomy the self organization but the ultimate thing that we uh maybe did not touch upon a lot but we i know that we are going in the right direction is still the customer so we did discuss briefly that during the second industrial revolution the customer did not have a lot of choice so although customer was still pretty much central for any business it was mostly about fulfilling their needs however in today's age in the information age needs get fulfilled much much faster i mean for me every household as uh, has a television for example but it's no longer about mass producing televisions and making that available to homes it's about what do you utilize the television for and so it has moved from needs to a lot more experience and today the question is what gives me more experience much better experience is it netflix versus youtube or something else mm-hmm. in fact i do remember the story where Uh, Michigan University uh, at one point of time decided they are not going to have any pavements for their campus because mm-hmm. they just wanted to observe what kind of desired paths or uh, pathways uh, students and the cyclists and others who visit the university take and after a year they just saw the these desired paths which were made around and that became mm-hmm. their pavements by default so experience has become like the de facto for anything that we do in the current age and for any customer that is the most important thing how does enterprise agility play its role with providing the best customer experience ever how does that work out yeah so let me uh you know share something which sort of was a aha moment for me when i was writing my book mm-hmm. so when i was looking at the various components of the organization for a lack of better word i'm calling that right which is people process structure governance etc mm-hmm. these are all inward facing mm-hmm. and then there was the customer and for me i started thinking why is customer an external entity mm-hmm. why can't we treat customer as an internal entity just like we treat our employees mm-hmm. yeah why does the customer have to be sitting on the other side of the table 
So I think for me, enterprise agility happens when you are actually in very, very close proximity to your customer, where you're actually involving them in your product creation by getting frequent feedback and they're helping in a way in which you can call it co-creation. This Michigan University example which you gave is an excellent example of co-creation. Right. Yeah. So they didn't design the, the paths. They waited for to see how people walk and then they constructed the paths based on, on that, right? So mm-hmm. the customer feedback was an inherent uh, uh, you know, uh, way for them to really understand you know, what, what, what the customers were wanting. Mm-hmm. So I would say that many organizations still continue to take their customers for granted. You look at the way in which you call a call center and the kind of responses you get, etc. As I said earlier, most organizations cater to only the happy parts. If yeah. something goes wrong, a customer is in an absolute loop mm-hmm. and has nowhere to go. But yes, as you said, today social media, etc., has made the customer much more powerful. And customers, again, are seeking a seamless experience. Customers are demanding. There is no loyalty anymore. Customers are willing to dump something. Uh, there is, that, that level of patience is missing because the choices are so many. Right? Mm-hmm. So I would say that treat your customer as somebody who is with you rather than who is opposite, on the opposite mm-hmm. side of the table. And involve the customer in, in everything that you do in terms of what, what products and services and other offerings that you create. Understand their pain areas. Be as close to them as possible. And move from the mindset of just satisfying the customer to delighting the customer. Right. And again, this thing about delighting, right? You have to empower people to be able to do that. Mm. Uh, so, you know, uh, delight means you give a customer a surprise or if they want some unusual request, does somebody have the power to fulfill that? Right? Uh, so it's a big cultural change to really put the customer at the center and let everything that you do flow from there. Because as somebody said, right, if, if, if the customer doesn't exist, the organization does not the exist because who pays for your products and services is your customer. So how can you give your customer the importance he or she deserves? And how can you make that customer the central pillar, you know, within your organization and treat it as an internal entity rather than as an external one? I think that's very important. And therefore, the capabilities of agility uh, are needed to be able to have uh, uh, have that relationship with your customer where you're able to quickly sense what they want you are able to quickly adapt and quickly respond to their needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when we are talking about this as adapt response, it is largely geared towards meeting the customers. So. I mean, yeah, I, I do agree completely that customer is, is in the center. Everything else revolves around it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Sunil, we have reached the end of this episode. Uh, any parting thoughts before we wrap up? It's been a very uh, long but a very interesting conversation. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. We covered a variety of topics uh, and your questions have been very thought-provoking and incisive. And I've 
thoroughly enjoyed answering all of them. Uh, but I think if I were to offer, you know, a key takeaway is that uh, we we have modeled uh, our our organizations as closed-ended systems, largely like machines, mm. and anything which is modeled as a closed-ended system usually does not have a life. Mm. Organizations always had a life. We never treated it that way. Right. Yeah. But in today's world, where the complexity is so much, and where we need to evolve constantly, and evolution can happen only when you have life. Mm -hmm. A non-living thing cannot evolve. Mm -hmm. The only thing that can happen to a non-living thing is degradation and obsolescence. Yeah. So if you have to evolve, yeah, you must model your organization and mm -hmm. treat your organization as a living thing. And your behaviors, your mindset, your culture, your approach to your customers mm -hmm. have to reflect that. And the, this need for fast evolution and continuous evolution means that you have no choice but to improve the level of agility in your organization. The point again is, you can start from where you are. Just like a human being can start from where he or she is in terms of improving one's health. We are at varying levels of health, but we can still do something to improve our health. Most of us. Mm -hmm. And there is no end point. It's a journey. It's not a destination. So you can start from where you are and then make that uh, a journey on which you should carry the entire organization and uh, you know on that journey with you uh, and and not just do it as as a, as a part and hope that people will just tag along mm -hmm. so it's important to build in that conviction within the organization to to be able to uh, recognize the need for change and evolution uh, so my 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 advice to leaders is to really embrace agility uh, holistically uh, and and take the organization to the next level of agility starting now. So, as we say in ThoughtWorks, right? Mm -hmm. Think big, yeah. start small, act fast, yeah. and that's that's what I would want to leave. Uh, you know, with leaders and influencers as we end this talk. Yeah. It was amazing speaking with you, Sunil. And thank you so much for being with me through all my questions. And this this has been a delightful experience. Thank you very for much. Me, for me as well, Vishal. And uh, I, I will cherish this conversation uh, which me we too. have had today. Me as well. Thank you. Thank you. That was Sunil Mundra, and every time I speak with him, I feel a little wiser. Hope this episode was just as educational for you as it was for me. For more of Enterprise Joy, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite application and on YouTube so you don't miss any episode. Patrons on patreon.com slash enterprisejoy get some exclusive benefits, so do check out what we have to offer. 
The details of our upcoming episodes can be found on our website enterprisejoy.com and you can send your feedback and comments to vishal at enterprisejoy.com so our podcast can continuously improve. So until next time, thank you for listening to this podcast. Take care and stay safe.